Hello and welcome to Pound the Rock, an NBA podcast by The Score. I'm your host, William Liu. I'm joined, as always, by Joe Wolfond. What's up, man? I say as always, but last week you weren't here. Yeah, I had a bit of a uh, dental emergency, uh, which we don't have to get into, but uh, Will Seguir, our uh, compatriot, um, stepping up, did a great job. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and Cash was here last time. Cash is not here today, but um, we are act- our plan is right now, because Game 7... Uh, between the uh, Cavs and the Celtics was so enthralling. We had to do an extra episode this week so um, to recap that. So that's going to be this podcast. We're going to talk largely about um, you know the conclusion of the Eastern Conference playoffs. Uh, and then tomorrow, we're going to recap the conclusion of the Western Conference playoffs um, in what goes down in Game 7 between the, the Warriors uh, and the Rockets, and then look ahead to the finals in terms of the matchup once we know that tomorrow. But... Um, yeah, let's go back to the East. LeBron James, another um, career-defining moment. Uh, there was a discussion after the game uh, about you know where does this stand in terms of his greatness, in terms of his most impressive uh, achievements, and it, it's kind of funny because there was two camps: one that was like rushing to crown him, like yes, this is this is his best accomplishment yet, and another camp that goes, come on, he's done so much more. And I, I, I guess I'm of the of the camp that he's done so much more, but at the same time, the fact that there's even a conversation about it because for almost any other player, this would be the all-time moment. But this even eclipses 2012 in Boston for me. Yeah, I mean. First of all, before we get into, you know, where this ranks on LeBron's greatest achievements, I just want to say, first of all, I love Doris Burke. I think she's fantastic at what she does. She's one of our best analysts, and I have a lot of respect for her. But I don't – I was a little uncomfortable with her, like, going up to LeBron afterwards, and she asked Ty Lu also and being like, do you think – I mean, she was parroting something Van Gundy said on the broadcast, but she was like, Jeff Van Gundy said this on the broadcast. What do you think? Is this your greatest accomplishment, taking this team – to the finals, mm-hmm. which is basically like asking, like, is this the trashest team that you've managed to yeah. take to the finals? Which is which, like, I don't know how he's how he's supposed to respond to that or how Ty Lue is supposed to respond to that. Um, and I thought LeBron actually handled that question pretty well. Like, he didn't throw his teammates under the bus um, mm-hmm. and was pretty supportive of them. In a season, you know, when they haven't given him a lot to be supportive what of. What are you talking about? <laughs> Jeff, Jeff Green was there all along to, um, to play the hero. Jeff Green did play... The at least the, he played the Robin role pretty uh, yeah. pretty excellently in that game seven. He was unbelievable. He was definitely their second best player in that game, mm-hmm. and uh, he was there when they needed him to be there. Um, huge performance from him. Uh, Tristan Thompson was great, yeah, and yeah. he was great in that game seven against the Pacers as well. He's really stepped up when they've needed him, um, and certainly the supporting cast has been a letdown uh, this season as a whole, but. They've gotten some timely contributions, I will say that. Um, and for as transcendent as LeBron has been, uh, he wouldn't be in this position if he hadn't gotten those timely contributions from the role players on that team that, frankly, otherwise have not been very good at all. Yeah, look, we could talk about Jeff Green's, um, you know, just it's just such a feel-good story that what Jeff Green did in Game 7. But um, let's go back to LeBron. Just I thought, first off, it was... The most impressive part about this Game 7 performance, and I guess Game 6 as well, like he was obviously just sensational in Game 6. The Celtics put together a really good game plan. They had a lot of players going off. Terry Rozier finally had a good road game, and LeBron holds them off in Game 6, and it's um, you know a classic, 45, I think 11 and 9, right? This game, LeBron's numbers aren't as big, but I think it's even more impressive because he goes into the opposing arena, and then he doesn't take a single second off he plays the full 48 minutes and which is just he has to do a lot of defensive he has a lot of defensive responsibilities right like him blocking terry rogier him diving into the stands i mean he didn't actually get the play but still um a spectacular effort for him to go into the crowd like that um and he's doing a lot of things defensively um basically switching on to every single celtics player um, and then offensively, he's also just delivering like the fact that he still has legs to hit those two threes in the fourth quarter, the fact that he could still drive to the rim and like he's getting dragged down by two or three players and he can finish for an and one. And the fact that he can keep his composure, I think that's the biggest thing where like we've seen LeBron drag teams to the playoffs and we'll talk plenty about that in this podcast. But, um, the fact that LeBron has learned how to manage a game, uh, to the point where he can play 48 minutes and be effective throughout, um is just that's a testament to his greatness i mean you know 
48 minutes in a closeout game, and he, he gets the job done. Yeah. And the Celtics have been undefeated, 10-0 and 0 at home in the playoffs before this game. Yeah, for sure. Um, defensively, uh, he definitely had some standout plays. I also think he like the Celtics bailed him out a lot. Sure. Just they, by, they by missed missing a lot. They missed a lot of open shots, and a lot of those were created because whether there was a miscommunication or a botched switch or LeBron just basically decided that he was not going to close out on a guy. It happened a few times, and the Celtics couldn't really make the Cavs pay for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like you said. I mean, he's become a master at just kind of conserving his energy and picking his spots. Right. And so it's kind of <laughs> the feeling that you're ultimately left with is even if the Celtics had managed to knock down some of those open shots, you kind of just have the sense that LeBron would have figured out how to get it done anyway. Right. Because that's just what he does. And anytime the Celtics sort of threatened to pull away, they couldn't gain enough separation mm-hmm. uh, to ever really relax. And um, eventually the Cavs were just kind of able to chip away, chip away, chip away. Right. And in the second half, I thought LeBron just took over with his playmaking. Uh, he made some unbelievable passes. Right. And it and helped that some of the Cavs started hitting shots. Jared yeah, Smith especially. 100%. Um, and LeBron had nine assists in the game. He could have had so many more because he set up so many open threes with those skip passes. Anytime he got doubled in the post, anytime the Celtics basically tried to do that scram switch after mm-hmm. Rozier got switched onto him and they tried to pull a defender over from the weak side, he was getting rid of that ball so fast with pinpoint passes yep. to the corner. Um and I don't know. I mean, there's nothing really left to say about him. He's yeah. he's just unbelievable. And like you say, playing the full 48 in an elimination game and just absolutely going off down the stretch and closing it out. Um, I I also thought it was um it was just really good game management by the team overall. Like LeBron, first off, like the reason he was able to play with the full 48 is because he was able to control the pace. Like um, the whole game, he just kind of choked the life out of it and made it a one-shot, maybe an offensive rebound, get-back-on-defense type of game. He, he single-handedly turned this into, um, you know, a slower-paced game, which helps you when you're trying to play the whole game. Uh, I thought that was impressive. I thought, like, that, that was... was that, I, I, that was another area where I felt like the Celtics kind of bailed them out. Yeah. Th- because they, they weren't they, really pushing the pace, like, or they were, but then mm-hmm. they would pull up. Like, they weren't really... It was like a half measure, I thought, because there would be times when... Marcus Smart or Terry Rozier, they would push the ball up the floor and they would right. like, get across midcourt really quickly, but then they would pull it back out and kind of reset and wait. And like they mm-hmm. wouldn't get into their action until they're like 14 seconds on the shot clock. So, yeah, I think the moment got to the Celtics a little bit and a little bit. And this is finally, I mean, the Celtics have shown great composure throughout the playoffs to even get this far. But um, there's a couple of moments there in, in the fourth quarter, you know, like Terry Rozier coming to the game ice cold for Jason, uh, Jason, um, Jalen Brown. Jalen Brown wasn't doing much. So Rozier comes in, and then, like, one of the first possessions he has, he just takes a random corner three, and it's just like, what are you doing? Like, you didn't pass anyone on that play. What are you doing? And it, it felt like the Celtics were um, were able to get points when they got inside the paint, but they didn't really make enough of an effort. But, I mean, at the same time, if they just hit some open looks, they, they probably would have gotten over the hill. But just LeBron, like, the fact that him managing his minutes, and or not managing his minutes, but just managing his workload, like that Rozier block, right, that huge one where he meets him at the rim, he just stands there and he looks at the crowd afterwards and sees the play unfold. And the reason for that is because they got fouled. And so he's like, I'm not going to go up the court. I'm just going to chill down here. And even those like, there's only a finite amount of energy you have, right? And so like the fact that he didn't run all the way down is actually not just him taunting the crowd. It's just him saying, look, I got to conserve my energy. And I also thought Ty Lu when he called the second timeout in a row in the fourth quarter there to give LeBron an extra three minutes of rest, that really helped because LeBron was a little bit fresher in in you know down the stretch and he made some huge plays. Yeah. That pass to George Hill. Man. <laughs> George Hill was I thought he was awful in this game, but Yeah. Again, and just like another layup. yeah, another timely play. Um mm-hmm. I mean, I, I agree George Hill wasn't great in this game, but the the two man game between him and LeBron just continues that to be true. so so effective and George Hill doesn't even have to do that much to be effective. Just him right. being on the floor and the Cavs having the luxury of basically using him as a screener and the Celtics basically have to switch it because Hill is still going to be a threat to knock down that open three or, you know, make a play off the dribble. Mm-hmm. Um, if they trap and LeBron passes out of it, like, it, it's just kind of like too big a risk. So they switch it. Right. And I thought, honestly, like the Celtics gave up that switch a little bit too easily. Yeah. Uh, the it- whole series, you know, like let it, letting Rogier get switched on to LeBron all series long, I just thought like they could have fought that switch a little bit harder than they did mm-hmm. and made it a little tougher uh, on the Cavs to get the match that LeBron wanted. But 
but the two-man game between Georgia in the Raptors series as well um like super super effective Mm -hmm. and um I think I mean if you look at the moves this team made at the deadline everyone was celebrating them saying you know they looked rejuvenated this was like the kick in the pants they needed they were gonna take off down the stretch it didn't really play off play out that way um Three of the four guys they got at the deadline Awful. were absolute Yo, Larry Nance, zeros. Larry Nance had the three fouls in the game like almost immediately. Not to mention, <laughs> like there was a play. I can't remember if it was in the third or the fourth quarter, but it was basically a tie game, or maybe the Cavs were up two. Yeah, and uh, LeBron gets trapped and delivers right. like a a perfect pass mm-hmm. to Nance, who has like ten feet of runway, right, with nobody in front of him, and just inexplicably travels. It was like his Patrick Patterson moment, man. He was, yeah, he was Oof. really, really shook. Um, honestly, he could have gone to the rim directly and dunked, or he could have just directly swung to the corner because Jalen Brown was in no man's land, and Kyle Corver was in the corner. Was wide open. Turnover. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, so Hood obviously, barely even. I don't know, even think Hood played. Did Hood play? I don't think Hood played. Um, Clarkson played, which is which phenomenal. Is, yeah, but it would have been better if he hadn't. Probably Clarkson has been one of the worst playoff performances I've ever seen. Hood too, man. I, yeah, I, like, like Nance has been passable in spurts, but overall, mm-hmm. those three guys ha- gave them nothing. And yeah. um, George Hill, I think, is the one guy you can point to that they that they actually yeah, they sure. got at the deadline who was a difference maker for them. Yeah, he was a difference maker in Game Six too. Like when he decides to be aggressive and drives to the rim a little bit, Hill can do that. He just doesn't. He just he's so content to fade into the background, and I think that's one of the biggest things that has held him back in his career. He's always been a solid point guard in terms of what he does, but like I think what separates a George Hill from someone like I think like on a really good day, George Hill can reach. Not well. I mean, it's hard to say Drew Holiday because Drew Holiday was so phenomenal. But like that type of um, aggression going to the rim and physicality, and he's long and he can shoot the three. But well, um, honestly, in a weird way, I feel like that is part of what has made George Hill such a good fit next to yeah, LeBron. That's true because he doesn't need to have the ball in his hands. He's a really good spot up shooter. Mm-hmm. He can make plays off the dribble. I just don't think necessary. he's aggressive enough. You know what I mean? I think th- that's fair, and there's a case to be made for that. But at the same time, like, what do you want? Uh, you know, maybe not sure. if you're if you're going to be like the second most reliable player on a LeBron team. Obviously, you'd rather have somebody like Kyrie Irving in that case who can actually give LeBron a rest on offense yeah. some of the time. But if you look at what didn't work with Isaiah Thomas there, the fact is Isaiah Thomas couldn't really play without the ball. Mm. He couldn't set screens the way that George Hill could set screens. He obviously couldn't defend the way that George Hill could defend. Yeah, and even if you look at uh, Clarkson and how that has worked out, like he just has been a little bit too selfish with the ball. It's not oh, as good. not a little bit. Way too much. <laughs> there, was not, one, there was one play in game six where he looked off LeBron. LeBron was like, I'm here for a post-up. Yeah. My hand is open. And Clarkson's like, no, no, I'm going to, don't worry, I'm going to cross over thing. and shoot and a The number of times stuff. he looks off LeBron when LeBron has a mismatch on a smaller <laughs> it's player. It's incredible, like, man. So, in that sense, uh, George Hill's been a really good fit because he is unselfish and agree maybe not aggressive enough sometimes but mm-hmm. conserves his energy for the defensive end of the floor and basically is exactly what they need him to be a guy who can hit open threes um and run that pick and roll with lebron uh whether he's a screener or the ball handler right and and defend opposing point guards really really well so um i think that was a good pickup for them and and the other three guys unfortunately uh they probably le- regret giving up a first round pick to take on jordan clarkson's contract yeah um i would say so one but. thing before we get off this point about the Cavs is um, Al Horford has now lost four or five series to LeBron um, between his days with the Hawks and his days with the Celtics. Um, and, you know, I was thinking about it after the game. I was like, man, Horford has lost to LeBron a lot. And if you really think about it, there's been a couple of players, the all LeBron losers Team first and second team, like there's a lot of players in the Eastern Conference, especially um, that have been dominated by LeBron, and so I came up with this one. I don't, I mean, you give me your thoughts on in, in terms of just like not the quality of these players, but just like in the magnitude of how much they lost to LeBron. All right, so the the first team all LeBron losers I got are Kyle Lowry, Demar Rosen, the Toronto Raptors backcourt. Okay, um, lifetime two and twelve against LeBron, Paul George. Um, gave LeBron a couple of really good scares, but you know ultimately faded. Al Horford, who has just consistently lost to LeBron, and also Tristan Thompson, oddly enough. Serge Ibaka. I'm putting Serge Ibaka at center. Um, I saw a lot of pushback on this on Twitter, but the fact that LeBron spun the ball in his face and then drilled a three in his face uh, and then said this year that he knows all of Ibaka's tendencies 
uh, in terms of where he's going to move and wherever. Also, Ibaka's 1-12 and 12 against LeBron between the Thunder days and the Raptor days. I think the pushback on the Ibaka thing was probably just due to the fact that He's not good. Yeah, exactly. You know, he used like, to be good. Ibaka just happened to be on some teams that LeBron beat. You know what I'm saying? It's not like... You know, it is funny that the Raptors were like, we got to get over the hump against LeBron, so we got Serge Ibaka. And Serge Ibaka's like, yeah, yeah, uh, okay. Nah, no, I'm not going to do nah. that. <laughs> no, I'm not even going to be able to dribble the basketball without turning the ball over. Yeah. Um, and then second team, I got Derrick Rose. Um, lost to LeBron a couple of times. Gilbert Arenas. Yeah, Arenas is the guy I might bump up to the first team. Really? Because it's hard to knock off Larry and DeRozan off this list. Honestly, even if it if just for that moment when when LeBron came and whispered in his ear, <laughs> and then he and, and then he missed the free throw, and the Cavs went and won the series on the next play. That's true. That's true. I mean, he sunned them hard. Yeah, he sunned them really hard. Um, all right, sorry. Continue. Um, small forward Lance Stevenson. Lance Wor- had to be on these teams. Worthy inclusion for sure. Yeah. Uh, Joakim Noah, power forward. Um, you know, his line, what's great about Cleveland? We'll always be timeless. Yeah. Also, just like going up and clapping right in LeBron's face. Oh, that. The, no, that was Chris Bosh. Chris Bosh was yelling at Mario Chalmers. Oh, weird. But yeah, I mean, he lost that series. So, um, Joe Keem's on that list. And then Roy Hibbert. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Solid list. I mean, yeah, those are those are your big teams. You got uh, you got the Raptors, you got the Hawks, uh, the Pacers. Mm. Those, those are, and the Bulls. Those yeah. are like the and four the Celtics, teams, kind of the four teams that LeBron has really, and the Celtics, right? The the, the the teams that LeBron has has destroyed in the Eastern Conference over the past eight years. Um, yeah, I can't really quibble with any of them. Um, I, I like like Lance Lance and uh, Joakim Noah are the guys who are they have like their own team. I feel like who are the guys who who act like they are not afraid of LeBron and get up in his oh, face. So and, the Sean Stevenson All Stars. Yeah, Deshaun, a hundred percent, exactly. But but Deshaun, you know, that whatever they the Mavs won that series, so yeah, that's true. That uh, that's Desha- right. Deshaun was also on those Wizards teams that got signed by LeBron, but he mm. he got his revenge in the 2011 Finals. Um, yeah. One of the first uh, self-proclaimed LeBron stoppers, Deshaun Stevenson. Much respect. One of the first players to have Michael Jordan as an NBA comp yeah. <laughs> coming out of college, and, All right. and tattoo a backwards P on his face. Wait, actually, yeah, playoff uh. <laughs> playoff backwards P. Um. Anyway, uh, uh, yeah, I, those those are great teams, and um, man, it, it's it's just crazy. Like I know, I feel like there's a there's a bit of revisionist history, mm-hmm. um, about these teams in the Eastern Conference, where in retrospect, it's really easy to look back and feel like they weren't very good. Yeah, like it's LeBron like of course the Raptors lost. Like of course the Celtics lost. Whatever, but. But that's it's really unfair, I think, and and it, and it diminishes not just those teams, but it diminishes what LeBron has accomplished as well. Because yeah, for sure. A lot of these teams were very good teams, mm-hmm. and LeBron just kind of made them look ordinary. Right, that's what great players do. Um, and the thing but, is, you can contrast it to the West, and like no matter what happens, if a team loses in the West, they still keep all their credibility for no for some reason, right? The Blazers. I mean, up until this year, they had they were very credible despite losing the playoffs repeatedly, right? And it was like, man, the Warriors had to get past the Blazers. They had to get past the Grizzlies. And it's like, all right, like what's really the difference between the Grizzlies and like the Indiana Pacers? Yeah, I think right? that's right. I, I I think look, let's be honest, the Western Conference has been the stronger conference yeah, for, for sure for twenty years now. Um, I, no one's really disputing but that's, that. That's but... like a commentary on like how bad the bottom of the East usually is. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's a bit of both. Like, okay, I think the playoff sure. the the playoff field on the whole has been stronger in the West for okay, that's for, true for for the West most, usually has most three if not teams. all of these years. Yeah, the West usually has three teams, and the East usually has two, and one of them is LeBron. Right. Um. So, look, I, I I'm not. I, I do think that there is a certain measure of credibility you can get by coming out of the West that maybe you won't get from coming out of the East, but at the same time, like. Those Bulls teams were very good. Definitely um, very good. Those Pacers teams were no joke. Yeah. These Raptors teams were very good in the regular they season. Were like very dominant good reg- regular season regular team. season teams and uh let themselves down in the playoffs without a doubt and had a lot to do with the fact that they lost in the way that they lost mm-hmm. to the Cavs in the last couple of years. Um you know, that was equal parts Cavs rising to the occasion and Raptors shrinking from it. But um, to to just dismiss this and say 
you know, obviously LeBron is beaten up on these side side Eastern Conference teams, uh, does a disservice, I think, to the incredible accomplishment that is going to the finals eight years in a row and just absolutely destroying some of these teams. Yep. Like destroying what could have been, you know, like a, a Bulls team that, I don't know, I mean, like that was a Bulls team on the rise, right? Between, yeah, it was a great team. Uh, there are a lot of other reasons that Bulls team faded. There were injuries, there was, yeah, yeah. you know, everything that happened with Joakim Noah and Derrick Rose. But and Tibbs too. Yeah. yeah. But but that was a team that won sixty two games. They you know, yeah. they finished first in the East two years in a row. Didn't matter. Um those Pacers teams were some of the best defensive teams we've ever seen. Yep. Didn't matter. Um and I mean, yeah, at the at the end of the day, like <laughs> LeBron, I don't know if there's another player in the league today or ever that could have taken the teams that he's taken to the finals eight years in a row. That's true. Um, Speaking of one of the teams that LeBron has defeated, the uh, Boston Celtics. Uh, First off, I think all Boston Celtics fans, I know it's disappointing to not go to the finals when you're so close and you had two opportunities to knock the Cavs out. But, I mean, at the same time, we can all – Agree that the Celtics um, undermanned, um, put out a, a great effort, and there's a lot of you know bright moments to take out of this one. I think the first one is I think just Jason Tatum throughout the playoffs. I mean, it got cemented to Game Seven with him dunking and uh, flexing on LeBron and having um, 24 points. Tatum really, really broke out in the playoffs. Um, I mean, he was pretty good in the regular season all throughout, but obviously he had to take a bigger role, and he was great. He reminds me a lot of Paul George, actually. Like, just without as much tenacious defense, which, like, Tatum is still a really good defender. Like, he had a play where he stripped LeBron and knocked it off of him, and, you know, he's had a couple of good defensive plays. But he reminds me of a young Paul George. He really does. And he's way more advanced than Paul George was when he came into the league offensively. Yeah, I think that's a really good comp. Um, and he, I just feel like he became so much more fluid as the season went, went yeah, along. Yeah, for sure. Like, the stuff he was doing in that game seven was absurd, man. Like that crossover on Tristan Thompson and that yeah. step back jumper, um, obviously driving and dunking on LeBron and getting right up in his face. Then moments later, hitting that sidestep three pointer right, to put right. the Celtics ahead. That Just, looked like the Celtics were actually going to win that. Yeah, right. Because that looked like the momentum changing. But then, of course, LeBron it really did. Um, two threes. Yeah, I mean, look, like you're going up against the best player in the world. That's, mm. <laughs> there's no shame in losing that head-to-head matchup. But for a while, Tatum kind of went toe-to-toe, yeah. and it was pretty awe-inspiring to watch. Uh, there, there's just no fear in that kid, and right. he's so talented, and it seems like he's just starting to kind of figure out how talented he is. Mm-hmm. And Paul George is a good comp, but again, like, we're, you know, we're talking about a 20-year-old rookie, so I think... The ceiling for Tatum is a lot higher, right? Um, particularly on the offensive end, mm-hmm. like just uh, again, like the 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 learning curve for him over the course of this season has been pretty staggering, and the stuff that he's been able to do off the dribble that he wasn't really doing earlier in the year when he was kind of parked in the corners and shooting like fifty percent on threes, but not really being asked to shoulder a lot of the playmaking responsibilities that he's doing now in the absence of a lead ball handler, right? Um, so I'm excited to see what he can do next year. Like uh, I'm excited to see what becomes of him in the future. Like he's a as exciting a young player I think as there is in the league right now. So um, Jalen Brown also really acquitted himself really well. Um, it's unfortunate that his he's a little bit streaky, and so I to that and it wasn't that surprising that he shot five of eighteen in Game Seven and only had thirteen points. Um, I think he doesn't really quite pick his spots well just yet because he isn't a natural scorer like Tatum is. Tatum is always going to look at the situation and understand how he's going to get to his shot, whereas like Jalen kind of forces his offense a little bit. But there's a couple of moments where he's so strong driving to the rim that like even a guy like Korver, which shouldn't necessarily be a mismatch. Obviously, Korver's not a great defender, but he's strong. He, he competes really hard, uh, and he's older. Generally speaking, older people have the more like – yeah, old man strength. Kyle Corbett has old man strength. That comes from, you know, training underwater and pushing a rock over in the offseason and stuff. Um, but, yeah, I mean, Jalen Brown will just drive right through him. The, the power drive that, that he's able to pull off against so many wings and point guards in the league is – he's really impressive. Um, and so, you know, you take those two. Uh, Horford had a lot of great moments in the playoffs. Obviously, he couldn't get past Tristan Thompson, but I don't know you could ask him to do that in this at this point in his career. But – the Celtics obviously still have a great core coming up, but there is still a question of like, 
what do they do with some of the ancillary pieces? And the two, well, I guess three really, um, are Marcus Smart, Terry Rozier, Aaron Baines. Uh, what do you do there if you're Danny Ainge? I think the, the Smart situation is going to be the most interesting one. Uh, Marcus Smart came out and said, uh, Jackie McMullen basically had a report saying that the Celtics were unwilling to match his asking price, which is $12 million to $14 million a year. Right. And I, I, I don't know whether he's worth that much or not, just based on, like, if you were going to do a kind of uh, qualitative analysis of, of like, what uh, what a player like him is worth on right. an annual basis, but just based on the fact that he is, like, a restricted free agency, a restricted free agent, sorry, um, and restricted free agency is a tough racket. Like, mm-hmm. um, it, it's just really hard because teams get scared off of um, signing them to offer sheets because they're worried about their cap space being tied up. Sure. Um, Especially when they expect the incumbent team to match. Mm -hmm. And there's just not a ton of leverage there for players in that position. And so they, a lot of time, end up getting squeezed. Right. And especially um, a summer like the one coming up where cap space is going to be really tight. Nobody has cap space. So... And nobody has this much money for Marcus. Right, Martin, man. Though. Like, the, I don't, I, I don't have it in front of me, but like, I feel like you could probably count on one hand the number of teams that actually have fourteen million dollars in cap space. Yeah. And I don't think any of them are gonna want to tie up that cap space in Marcus Smart. Right. For any amount of time, you know. Let alone, you know, even if it's just to kind of put in a predatory offer and mm-hmm. and put the Celtics in a position where you know you they, might lose they, for they either have to lose them for nothing or they have to match an uncomfortable offer sheet. I don't think anybody is really going to be willing to do that. So I don't, I don't anticipate him getting that amount. But I also can see where he's coming from, though, because like his effect for the Celtics in terms of just him raising the intensity of the game and making those classic Marcus Smart plays. Like there's one where he stole a rebound away from LeBron and had a key layup in the fourth quarter. Like those are the type of things that Marcus Smart really does excel in, and it doesn't really quite make sense. But I'm sure Celtics fans, having watched Smart for like four or five years now. They completely understand like what his value is to the yeah. team, and I think his value to the team is about that much money. Is just how much leverage will he have? So that's the thing because he won't have the leverage. Like regardless yeah. of what what you know the intangibles say, even mm-hmm. even if you look at like the peripheral numbers, this is the most insane thing to me is that you watch him and sometimes it looks like he is just absolutely killing their offense, right? Yeah. Because teams ignore him. Um, and so he'll get these wide open threes that he cannot make. He also kind of is very he can't willing finish to at the take rim. a shot. Yeah. yeah, he's really happy to shoot, which is weird for a guy who's, you know, you would think he'd be like Roberson, and Roberson's right. a guy who's getting a kind of contract that he wants to get. Mm-hmm. But, but know. then yeah, so sometimes it's like you he's unplayable. You can't have him out there. He, sh- he shoots one of ten yeah. in game seven, and there were a lot of possessions where their offense was getting so congested, and um. A big reason for that was the fact that he was out there and, you know, the Celtics a lot of the time, like if he doesn't have the ball in his hands, they're playing four on five. But he does make a ton of ridiculous hustle plays. He is a fantastic defender who can defend three positions pretty capably, maybe even four. He's an underrated passer. Mm-hmm. Um, he's got really good pick and roll chemistry with Al Horford. He, he does a lot of great things. defense against LeBron. He yeah. forced LeBron into a lot of turnovers in yeah. the series. He, his transition defense is some of the best yeah. in the NBA. Like right. he's always back. Um, his verticality, uh, like when guys are kind of going at him in transition, is excellent. He draws a lot of charges. He does so many different things well. Mm-hmm. And and the craziest thing to me, like the thing that you think he's taking off the table, often doesn't even really reveal itself. Yeah. In the outcomes, like the Celtics are producing, so he shoots thirty-two percent from the field, twenty-two percent in the conference finals. Mm-hmm. The Celtics offense was 21 points per 100 possessions better with him on the floor. Yeah. With him on the bench, their offensive rating was 89. That's insane. Um, that doesn't make any sense. But, it, I mean, that's just, no the same sense. trend happened in the regular season. Yeah. like not, not to the same extent because they had Kyrie, but, like... But the, they were still they, be- they're still better with him on the floor. Like, yeah. I, I don't... It's hard to say. And I, I feel bad for Smart. It's really just... I mean, so much of free agency just comes down to, like, when you become a free agent. This right. is just a bad time to be a free agent. What about a guy like... Um, Baines. Baines was added as an unrestricted free agent. Um, you know, four million dollars of a coup for Danny Ainge this mm-hmm. season. This season, um, he played a lot of great defense. Um, you know, solid role player. I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like he's going to get a bigger offer somewhere else. 
Yeah, he. I don't think he is a guy that the Celtics can really afford to keep, but it. I mean, I don't know. I, I think the problem there is they don't have his bird rights, right? So yeah. someone's going to um, come in with like a, you know, mid-level. Right. Well, they just, I mean, they can't go over the cap to sign him. Um, yeah. And uh, they're I, right I, at the cap right now. Yeah. So I, I don't like unless unless they renounce smart, basically, and they True. decide that somebody else is going to sign them. They're not going to be able to afford to keep them anyway. Mm-hmm. And then maybe they have some cap space and some wiggle room and they can bring back Baines, who was a pretty important piece for them. Honestly, yeah. like when when the Cavs kind of countered with Tristan Thompson, basically, to try and neutralize Horford, the Celtics answer was to start Baines mm-hmm. and. He did a really good job. Like, yeah, yeah. I was really impressed with the work that he did when he got switched on to LeBron. I thought he yeah, did a yeah. really good job moving his feet. And obviously, mm-hmm. he was basically a brick wall. So, it's not like LeBron can go through him. Right. Um, he did a good job punishing the Cavs on the offensive boards when they would try and kind of hide a wing on him. Mm-hmm. And um, I think just just generally, he offered them uh, another option in terms of uh, their kind of lineup flexibility. They could play small with Horford at center, but also, also, you know, if the other team wanted to muddy it up and turn it into like a slugfest, mm-hmm. Baines is the guy that you want to have in an, in a game or a series like that. That's um, true. Because he can do a lot of the dirty work. He's a really good rebounder, and he's turned himself into a really, really good defender. So, yeah, he's a guy who, it's like smart, right? Like, they would love to keep him. It's just about the price a little bit. And if some team decides to swoop him with some crazy deal, like what the Pistons did when he was a member of the Spurs, then he's going to leave. That's all. Yeah, yeah I, wouldn't, I wouldn't expect him to be back. But again, I think that might depend on, on the smart situation. That's and true. the smart situation to me, like we said, he doesn't have the leverage. So it's mostly just going to be about whether the Celtics kind of... We've seen this happen before where a team just sort of gives a player what they feel they're worth yeah. to that team not based on what they think they would have gotten on the open market. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's sort of like a loyalty play. And I feel like we saw the Raptors do this last offseason. Right. And maybe they're kind of regretting it now because they give Serge Ibaka a three-year, $65 million deal that he certainly wasn't going to get anywhere They gave Kyle else. Lowry the third biggest contract in the league. They gave Kyle Lowry you know, a three-year, $90 million million dollar deal uh, there was within, no market for him right exactly with with yeah. incentives running up to a hundred million dollars like those they, they were bidding against themselves in both of those situations yeah. and i think they probably knew that but uh it was about goodwill and sure. saying like look you guys have meant a lot to our i mean in lowry's case you've meant to a lot to, a lot to our franchise in ibaka's case i think it was we hope you could mean a lot to us right and um, and i think maybe there was there was kind of like a handshake deal even when they traded for him because, probably um, because they gave up a draft pick and they didn't want to give up a draft pick to lose them for nothing. So that's a situation where maybe you see, you see the Celtics for as coldly pragmatic as they can be sometimes. Hey, man, they, it's not like Isaiah Thomas was last summer or anything or they that they traded Paul Pierce and Kevin Garnett. Yeah, okay. That's Which no co- one regrets those because they got great picks, but like... No, of course they stole, not. I'm that's sure not they don't regret trading thing. Isaiah Thomas for Kyrie Irving either. Yeah, they, the, oof, man. Danny Ainge is an effing thief. That was a anonymous... Um, Cavaliers player yeah. said that this season, and honestly, yes, that is true. I he should just go on the record and say that. Yeah, he should, he should go on the record and say that. That so, was definitely LeBron. Oh my god. <laughs> anyway, look, like the the Celtics can be extremely coldly rational. Mm-hmm. It's worked out very well for them. Yeah. So I don't know if you would expect them to go out and give like some sort of a legacy contract to a guy like Marcus Smart. Right. They will probably offer him what they feel like, you know, he's worth on the open market, True. which frankly doesn't seem like nearly as much as he's asking for right now. So right. really interested to see how that plays out. Uh, Rogier is extension eligible. Yeah. Um, which I still don't think they really do extend him. No, Cause... probably not. Especially because like we were just saying, <laughs> restricted free agency is kind of, yeah, restrictive. They, they, yeah, they would rather keep him at his three million dollar price next season instead of give him an extension beyond yeah. that. Yeah, and just see what happens there. I think, uh, yeah, the thing is, like the Celtics, if you really look at it, they're kind of positioned to make a huge move. And this is what's always been said about the Celtics: they're out of the Nets picks, um, but they still have a ton more. They could have four picks in the 2019 draft. Um, they have the Clippers pick that's lottery protected. The Clippers look like they're about to make moves and go back to the playoffs. Plus, they almost made the playoffs this year anyway. So that's that's definitely in play. The Memphis Grizzlies, 
pick. Um, you know, if the Grizzlies can pick themselves up a little bit, it's only top eight protected. And then they get the better of the Kings and the um, the Sixers pick, and both of those are top one protected. There's actually a real chance that the Kings get the number one pick because they're, they're so trash. But, like, you know, there's also a chance that the Celtics have their own pick plus three other first-round picks coming in. And, you know, they don't have enough space on the roster to accommodate all that, so it does seem like this year would be the time where they make a big trade. Um, but, I mean, at the same time, like, which – the, the Celtics are running into an issue where they have too many big contracts and not enough like mid-tier salary to trade for other pieces. And so that's I'll, where those like Rogier and smart contracts could yeah. kind of come in handy. Right. They and maybe maybe that's why they do spring for an extension for Rogier. They can get him at like nine million dollars a year or something like that. Suddenly that's a, maybe a movable yeah. contract. Where, Rogier and smart might be bidding against each other, basically. Yeah. For the same bag. Yeah, they could be. Or or the Celtics could just decide that they're okay going into the tax. Sure. You know, give give Smart a kind of mid-market deal. Um, you know, both of those guys, I think, could come in somewhere between like 8 and $11 million a year. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, like, you have the makings of a trade package with the picks that you have and, and the young assets that you have on contracts that you can cobble together to, uh, you know, match up to a max salary. I don't know. I, I think th- there's something to be said for just having those kind of contracts on your books that are tradable, especially when they're attached to players who are useful mm. as opposed to just dead weight. Okay. And then um, we move over to the West. I mean, look, the we're, like I said earlier, we're going to have another podcast tomorrow to um, react to Game 7 um, and also preview the finals. But we can quickly look at it here. Uh, I think, first off, Game 7 is going to be a huge legacy game for Kevin Durant. Um, Kevin Durant hasn't had a lot of success in his legacy games in terms of those big career-defining moments. Like When I think about this game for Kevin Durant, it's a lot like when LeBron was in Game 6 of 2012 against the Celtics where he had to come up with a huge performance, and you see LeBron scowling. You see him with that evil look in his eye, and then he ends up you know, walking away with a 45-point performance to, to stave off elimination and stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, this, this is the same scenario for the for, for Kevin Durant because, look, he left to win a championship. And last year he won the championship, but it didn't really validate anything for him, right? And you can see that based on his behavior of, throughout the summer of just him, like, showing a lot of insecure behavior, right? Which comes from probably the, the sentiment that he didn't really quite deserve it. He latched onto a bigger team. So now the Warriors really need him. And I think, like, the... The one thing that's been really strange about this series is that the more prominent Kevin Durant has been in the offense, the less the Warriors have looked like themselves. And, you know, part of that goes to the Rockets' defense. But, you know, Kevin Durant had a couple bad performances, especially in games uh, four and five where the Warriors lost. A lot of that was KD going ISO a lot um, and the Warriors losing their way. And, you know, Kevin Durant really needs to step up. Either he's going to ISO. If he does ISO, he needs to go for, like, 40, basically. He either has to do that or he has to step back, which, you know, essentially that's what he did in game six and the Warriors had a lot of success. So, all right. Well, first off, like a word about Durant legacy games. I think Mm -hmm. uh, it gets forgotten, but he was really incredible in that game seven against the Warriors two years ago. Yeah. They lost that game. It was not because of him. Um, And um, he was pretty incredible in the finals last year. Um, winning finals MVP on a team with four right. future Hall of Famers is nothing to sneeze at. But um, I mean, like, and that was a case where it was like very clear the Warriors were much better. But I think that's still the case. And I think if you want to look at it in terms of the big picture, like, I don't know that anything Durant does with this iteration of the Warriors is going to change that many people's minds about what he did or who he is or his place in history. Like, well, he basically has to jump ahead of Steph to get that credit. But and I even, don't think he was ever gonna, he's ever going to do that with this Warriors team. But even so, he'll, like, he'll always be the guy who latched onto a 73-win team. Yeah. You know, nothing's going to change that. And I'm not saying that's fair. He, he was an incredible player. Like, he was one of the best scorers we've ever seen. And, you know, maybe when all is said and done – we will regret not appreciating him enough mm-hmm. and not singing his praises enough. But, like, he had to know that this was going to happen, right? Like, that was part of the sacrifice that he made in joining the Warriors right. was, you know, he made the decision that what he wanted was to, 
a you know kind of create a different lifestyle for himself which he has done successfully he's done you know he's he's living in a more cosmopolitan city and he's talked about how sort of like different opportunities in tech have opened up for him and he's turning himself into more of an entrepreneurial figure um and he won his championship he had his moment in the sun hitting that shot over lebron in game three last Mm -hmm. year winning finals mvp saying that he felt like the torch had been passed which whatever (laughs) jury is still out on that but i doubt it he got all those things that he wanted, but, you know, it came at a certain cost, which was that right. nobody really cared that no one, much. No one credited him for it, you know what I mean? Like, it didn't it didn't. I don't think feel... it's that nobody credited for him for it. I think it was just that nobody really cared because right. as soon as he went there, everyone knew that they were going to win the title. Yeah. And that's not really fair because you can't just totally strip him and that entire Warriors team of any agency. They still had to do it, right? Right. But it felt like the Warriors earned it, and then KD joined in to continue and push it forward, which has happened to a lot of free agents for uh, sure. over the years. For but sure. I mean, There's yeah, never been anything anything like that happen before. Because, first of all, there had never been a team that won 73 that games true. before. That is true. And there certainly had never been a team that good that added a player that good. So, But, I mean, like this is the most pressure KD's going to face with the Warriors, basically, right? Like, facing elimination on the road... I don't know if Chris Paul plays, if he plays or not. Obviously, that's a big factor. He's still questionable as we currently record. Um, but even if he does play, he's obviously not going to be 100%. Like, this is a moment where KD needs to step up and either allow the Warriors to sort of succeed and play their game around him or for him to dominate by himself. Right. And Or maybe just have him to dominate within the Warriors' offense. That's also a possibility. I just feel like... I don't know. It's been it's been strange watching KD with the Warriors because he's so good individually that you can always give him to him for a b- bucket. But I feel like that also detracts from what the Warriors like to do otherwise. Um, one quick question before we go to break, and it's going to sound crazy, but um, who is the Warriors Jeff Green? Like, who is gonna? I mean, do the, first off, do the Warriors even need a Jeff Green type of you know? Holy crap! I can't believe he's doing this. But if they do get that from somebody. Um, who is it going to be? Because Iguodala is already ruled out for mm-hmm. a third straight game with that leg injury. You know, who's going to be the Jeff Green? Game sevens always need Jeff Green. Oh man, like I, I do they need a Jeff Green? Like their <laughs> okay. Jeff Green is Clay Thompson, basically. You That's know? crazy. Yeah, it's nuts. Um, no, I, I don't think they need somebody, some rando to step up off the bench. But they do need um, a fifth guy at least, right? The, like the four, the four All Stars mm-hmm. are going to play great for sure, sure. But yeah. like. Who's that fifth guy? Um, I mean, I, I guess I guess it could be Kevon Looney, who's Yikes. had a pretty good series. Um, he had a strong series to start, but he's waning. He is, but he honestly, like they in game five. Yeah, he. I, I thought he act like he, he did a pretty good job of getting switched on to Chris Paul, mm-hmm. less so switched on to Harden. Um, but he's done a pretty good job, I think, protecting the rim and just like. I, I don't know. He's been solid and made very few mistakes, I True. think. Uh, and the fact that he can't hang on the perimeter with some of the best perimeter scorers in the game, I don't think it is uh, a blight on his record. But um, I don't know. That's also a tough one because it's not like Kevon Looney is going to like step up and go off for 18 points or anything like he that. He might go right? off for eight points. <laughs> um, I don't know. Nick Young, maybe? Like this would it'd be pretty funny if Nick Young came out and had like twenty four points and he was the reason why the Warriors blew out the Rockets. But, yeah. Um, no, but like what the Warriors? Yeah, you're right. You know, you said like, it like the Rockets. Are the, the, the Rockets are the team that needed Jeff Green. That right? is true. And they they have a Gerald Green who sure has had some moments. Great hair. Honestly. He's had some moments. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, okay, he's had some moments, but like his moments are like I hit two threes in a row and it was cool. But then I went back doing nothing. But those two games that the Rockets won, like games four yeah, and he five, was, he was important. He, he was, was important. he was solid at both ends of the floor. Um, I mean, the Rockets need all hands on deck, man. That's true. If Chris Paul is not going to play, or if he if he does play and is physically compromised, which he I think a hundred percent would be, they're going to play like plays. a six man rotation if Chris Paul is not healthy, and that six man is, um, Gerald Green. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, they don't have a ton of options. They they need everybody to play well. And I think for them, the guy they really need is Eric Gordon. Yeah. He's had a really good series. Yeah. And um like they just don't have really anybody else who's a mm-hmm. threat to make plays off the dribble. 
Yeah. It's got to be Eric Gordon. And his power drives have been really impressive. He's pretty much played outplayed Clay Thompson yeah. in the series. He's got a really quick first step. And, and he's, you know, he's managed to burn the Warriors at the point of attack right. a lot. He's hitting like pull-up threes in transition. Mm-hmm. He's been a boss. Um, yeah. They really need him uh, in Game 7 if they want to have any chance. And this is just taking for granted that Harden's going to be Harden, which hopefully he will be. Um, he's going to have to take on even more of a playmaking load with Chris Paul sidelined or hobbled. And he's he's slowed down as the series has gone. I mean, yeah. he had a little bit. He was nice to start game six, but he really faded game six too. So, yeah. yeah. What? It's going to be a concern. It's going to be a concern. Um, but, yeah, I mean, look, we'll talk more about the series tomorrow, obviously, because, mm-hmm. um, you know, whatever we say now, it's going to become irrelevant in, like, a couple hours. Yeah. So Big thing for the Rockets, I think, is also just, like, limiting their turnovers because... That is true. They were so sloppy in game six. It's insane. And like, this is supposed to be one of the big benefits of playing iso ball is yeah. that you limit your turnovers because you're not whipping the ball around. But... They are not doing that. They're, mm-hmm. they're passing the ball 218 times a game, which is dead last in the playoffs and is way down from even their league low mark during the regular season. Mm-hmm. And they're still turning it over 16 times a game. That's too so, much. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, they got to be more precise with their passing and rain fire from deep, basically. True. Okay, we're going to take a quick break right here, and we're going to come back on the other side. We're going to do make or miss and also our playoff flashback. Welcome back to Pound the Rock. As always, your friendly reminder to support the show by rating, reviewing, subscribing um, to the podcast. It really does help a lot if you can do that, uh, especially in iTunes. Um, you know, iTunes is king when it comes to podcasting. And uh, yeah, you know, if you like the show, hit five stars, write a review, tell your friend. And yeah, we'll, be, we'll really appreciate that. So moving on to our Make or Miss League segment. Once again, Dwayne Casey, you'll, rem- you'll be remembered. Dwayne Casey is a candidate for the Pistons job. Hopefully he gets it. Um, so this podcast is a little bit more relevant. And hopefully he says pound the rock um, in Detroit. I hope he brings that rock that he had in the Raptors locker room over to Detroit. It's uh, not that long of a drive. You can get a U-Haul and probably get it there in like three and a half hours. But um, anyway, make or miss. So uh, first one, LeBron going to the finals um, makes him more likely to resign with the Cavaliers. I'm going to call it a miss uh, because at the end of the day, I just don't think that it really changes anything. Mm-hmm. If they go to the finals and get whitewashed, which I kind of expect them to, uh, you know, how how much has really changed? You know, does it really matter that he went to the finals and, and ran up against the same roadblock without making any more progress? Mm-hmm. This Cavs team, as it's currently constructed, isn't really going anywhere. I don't know that having the number eight yeah. pick in the draft is really going to change that. So... I'm not saying that he's necessarily going to leave. I just don't know if getting to the finals actually changes anything. I feel like he's still going to look around this offseason and try and find the situation that's going to give him the best chance to win the title. And it doesn't look like that is staying in Cleveland right now. Yeah, I agree on that one. Um, yeah, it's a miss. I mean, look, it's one thing. It'd be one thing if Jordan Clarkson and Rodney Hood and Larry Nance balled out because that's basically the young core and like Chetty Osman was doing stuff. None of that's happening. It's really just the old guys going for it one last time. And um, it's kind of fun to watch them do it, but it's also kind of sad. It's like we, you have not made any progress basically on that front. And they have no flexibility to None. do anything else. So, Yeah, so yeah, I, I, I agree. That's a miss. All right, um, make or miss. Kobe was trying to insert himself into the greatest of all time conversation when he said, uh, you shouldn't judge. You shouldn't compare MJ to LeBron. You should just enjoy MJ six, my five, and whatever LeBron's doing. Um, was he trying to insert himself into the conversation? I mean, isn't he always? That is true. <laughs> That's a definitely a make. Yeah, I'll call it a make. <laughs> um, it's actually a forty-three percent make. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> um. Yeah. No. Of course. Uh, which whatever Kobe's earned the right to insert himself into the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, I personally don't think he belongs in the conversation between MJ and LeBron, but different strokes. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I think those two guys are, are in a category by themselves at this point in time, but mm-hmm. I'm also not so married to that idea that I'm willing to heatedly debate it. Like I just right. can't be bothered too much with, with kind of 
trying to judge uh, historical hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Um, they were all great in their own ways mm-hmm. uh, for different reasons. And, and in their own eras. Yeah, for yeah, sure. Like LeBron's overlapped a little bit with Kobe, but like they never really squared off. Right. And, it's, uh, yeah, it, it's really hard to compare eras mm-hmm. and context is so important and it's so hard to judge. And I don't know, at the end of the day, what you're left with is your own subjective opinion. So... Yeah. Um, that's totally fine if if somebody wants to be out here arguing that uh, you know Kobe belongs in that conversation, Kobe potentially being among those people. Um, hey man, five rings. Yeah, that Kobe gif of him counting to five in a suit. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's the rest of his career, by the for way. sure. Yeah, he's just gonna be doing that all the time. <laughs> yeah. Um. I. I mean, I don't know what to say. He. He. Definitely. Uh, Belongs in a conversation. Yeah, sure. So you know what's funny though. I mean, the the whole like Kobe vouching for himself so much has really helped himself elevate over Tim Duncan because Tim Duncan is just as successful, if not more successful, than Kobe <laughs> during this era. Over the same era, like their careers right. almost in, in you know perfectly overlapped. But I mean, at the same time, people don't really talk about Tim Duncan. In five years, nobody will even know his name. Yeah, Tim Duncan's just gonna be like, whatever. I'm just gonna be chilling in the Virgin Islands, you know, doing good deeds, driving cars. Yeah. Um, Kobe's detail though very good really highly recommend Kobe's detail um, next one make or miss uh, uh, Vladi Divac skipping EuroLeague final to attend his son's graduation isn't a big deal so um, yeah I mean this came out as a report over the weekend that uh, yeah Vladi was scouting and the Kings won the number two pick and you figured well they might take Luka Doncic Doncic is playing in EuroLeague finals and then you know Vladi wasn't there to see the finals, in which he was named MVP and he won the 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 the, uh, the title for Real Madrid. I, uh, I think it's a make, as in, I agree that it's no big deal. Okay, because right. he was there before. He saw the games leading up to it, right? And you can still watch tape and scout that way. You don't necessarily need to be present and, and watch him play live. Um, maybe it helps. Maybe you see something being there in person that you wouldn't see just watching it back on yeah. tape, but. Um, at the end of the day, I'm not going to fault the guy for, you know, uh, taking his paternal responsibilities seriously. And that's true. And that's a big event, a son's graduation. So I support him going, and and I'm not going to beat him up over that. Um, especially because, I, you know, I don't see. I'm not a scout, so I can't really say what the qualitative difference is. But true. I don't see a huge difference between, uh, you know, being there to scout in person compared to, you know, going back and watching it and scouting him on tape. Uh, I'm going to say it's a make that it is a big deal or I guess it's a miss that it's a big deal. But um, I think it's just a big deal in the sense that like you don't want these reports coming out, man. You don't you just don't want these reports coming out because like if Doncic becomes a great player, people are going to look back at the Kings. And if they pass on Doncic, they're going to be like, wow, look at the Kings. Look at Vladi. Just just, you know, ab- just skipping out of responsibilities. But, I mean, largely I agree with you. And being a good dad is, is, is very important. But uh, it's just kind of funny. You know, it just kind of perpetuates the narrative of the Kings, even if it's not necessarily this, as true as it was previously. Next one, make or miss, Carmelo is right in uh, dismissing the Kyle Corver better talk. There was a Instagram post of something about, like, you know, Kyle Corver playing, is playing better, than Car- is a better player than Carmelo right now. And Carmelo was just like, man, I have to – be like, you know, that's that, that's ridiculous. Carmelo defending his 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 legacy <laughs> at this point in year fifteen. Um, uh, I don't know. I I mean, I guess it's a make because I I do feel like Carmelo has a right to defend his legacy. Sure. Um, I mean, his career is definitely more impressive than Kalkover's career, for, for sure. sure. Yeah, okay, so I, I missed this storyline, so... Oh, okay, so basically it was like one of those Instagram stories, yeah. and then, yeah, yeah, Carvalho just took exception to it. He's like, no way. Like, you know, like, come on, I'm better than Kalkover. Well, who was it who was saying that Corver? Just some better. random person on person on Instagram. You know how that, sh- that, you know how that goes. Like, okay, because that's different, because I feel like what's... Like, why are you going to take exception to some random person's Instagram? Like, who cares? NBA athletes do this all the time, man. They always do this, you know? They like, <laughs> Yeah, look, I mean, I don't want to judge because I have as thin skin as anybody. Mm-hmm. I just feel like if you're Carmelo Anthony and you had the kind of success that you've had, um, you've had an absolutely fantastic career, made a whole lot of money, 
known as our, one of the greatest Olympic basketball players ever. <laughs> yeah, it's true. For sure. Uh, to damn with faint praise, I suppose. But uh, yeah. look, the guy's going to the Hall of Fame. Um, he's what? He's top 25 in scoring already yep. in his career. Um, you know, he's got a, a really solid NBA resume. So I don't know why he needs to be out here taking exception to some random Instagram user's story about Kyle Korver playing better right now. I agree. Kyle Korver has certainly been better in the 2018 playoffs than Carmelo was. Yep. Um, he has the right to defend his legacy if he wants to, but um, I don't know if he has a case. This whole season has been Carmelo defending his legacy. From, it's from hey, P, they, got, they want me to come off the bench to, hey, I'm better than Kyle Korver, which yeah. is it's just an, it's, a shocking decline. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, he's... It's it, like on and off the court. It's yeah. kind of been about him defending his legacy, right? Because he has kind of played like the same way that he's always played. It's a lot of jab step, jab step, mm. jumper, a lot of isolation, a lot of ball stopping, mm. and his inability to adapt has been a big part of his um, sort of loss of equity around the league. I think, right? And you know, him kind of holding onto that for dear life has, I think, been a big part of kind of his sad decline, I think, because if if he had been able to adapt and kind of find a different role for himself... Yeah, it'd be different. He he could have been an effective player this year, but he, he just wasn't. He flat out wasn't an effective player this year, and, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that he was still trying to be the old mellow. Yeah, and now he's just old mellow. And then last one, uh, if, the, if Chris Ball doesn't play and the Warriors win, um, that will be another asterisk on the Warriors. Legacy, make or miss. The Warriors have had a couple of asterisks, you know. No, uh, no Kevin Love, no um, Kyrie in the 2015 title. Mm-hmm. No Mike Conley. Oh, <laughs> yo, Mike Conley wow. coming out with this busted face was was hard to hard to watch. Yeah, um, you know. I mean, dodging Kawhi, dodging last Kawhi. Year. Yeah, that's right. There's a down, lot of couple down 22 points in game one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. No, no. <laughs> look, uh, yeah, it yeah, is yeah, sure. Okay. I mean, yeah. look, uh, people are always going to try and poke holes. Yeah, in this Warriors, if you want to call it a no, dynasty, they poke holes like, in everybody, man. They poke holes in MJ. They poke holes in like LeBron being three and five in the finals. Okay, that's that's true. I yeah. I agree with all that, but I, I think, and and maybe it was the same with like the LeBron era Heat as mm-hmm. well, but. There was such a backlash against this team when right. they added Durant, and I think every like not everybody, but a lot of people are going to look for any excuse they can to kind of knock them down a peg. Right. And I feel like, on the whole, this season's been super disappointing, man. Like this season's been really kinda, oh for the injuries. Okay, the injuries, but also just the way they played. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, like, oh, yeah for they, sure. They haven't cared. It's they not they like, haven't cared, and it's been a drag, man. Like they have yeah. not been fun to watch. You know what? They they become the old. They become the Cavaliers, a little bit. Yeah, they're gonna flip the switch. You know, they're not gonna play as much uh, as much on defense. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah. It's but like, even then, it's like okay, when when a team is has as much talent as they have, mm-hmm. I think what you at least want is to witness something truly extraordinary, right? Right. And that's why I have a lot of fondness for the 2015-16 Warriors because they really oh went for God. it. Yeah, they went all game out. Game was a must-watch. Yeah, it was incredible. They were playing with so much fire. They went all out in pursuit of 73 wins, right. and they couldn't close a deal. But I, I had a ton of respect and affection Definitely. for that team because because they brought it every single night. You know, it was appointment viewing. And this year, I didn't really care to watch the Warriors. Like no, they they brought team. it like 20 percent of the time. They didn't look to be particularly happy playing the game. Yeah, the injuries had a huge part to play in that. Right. Um, but at the end of the day, like they've they've not really been super dominant for any sustained stretch of this season, and now they're playing the Rockets, who are you know the biggest challenge, I guess, to their dominance in the Western Conference um, since Durant joined the team, at least. Yeah, and they're going to seven games. You know, like they they haven't really. Yeah, they haven't really put their foot down and and kind of um, made this season something special the way that they could have given the assembly of talent on hand. So that's true. I feel like to a certain extent, there's there's like a justifiable criticism there. Yeah, I agree. And again, yeah, like 
nobody's going to take anything away from them if they go and win the title again. You win the title, you win the title. Like, right. that is unimpeachable. But, yeah, of course people are going to say, okay, they beat a Rockets team that had one All-Star and mm-hmm. Chris Paul was injured. And the and- last we saw of Chris Paul was him on, like, one leg giving Isaiah Thomas performance of just, like, hitting these ridiculous shots. And the thing is, the underrated part about that was he was 0 of 7 in the first half of Game 5. Mm-hmm. And then he comes out of Game – comes out of the, uh, the the halftime and in, game, in the third quarter there, and he's just hitting these insane buzzer beaters. And it's like a classic Chris Paul. Like, I felt like Chris Paul was completely redeemed. Yeah. Harden isn't completely redeemed. And if he has a great performance in Game 7, maybe, but – yeah, I mean, Chris Paul felt like he was completely redeemed. But then also, like, you know, I think Chris Paul would like to go to the finals and stuff. But Yeah. yeah. Also, Chris Paul, I don't think, needed redemption. No, nah, he needed redemption. <laughs> Come on, he needed redemption. All right. Well, you know... The narrative like, of Chris I, Paul, I, as annoying have, as it is. I've bristled at that narrative for a really long time. And I was really happy for him finally exactly. getting into the conference Very. finals. Having that performance that he did mm-hmm. in the closeout game against Utah. Having that perform- the performance he did in Game 5 against yeah. the Warriors. And, man, what a f- freaking bummer. To have him go down the way that he did in that game that he had. Um, And the fact that, you know, even if he does manage to play, like the fact that he's not going to be anywhere close to 100% just sucks. Yeah. And and it sucks both ways. And that's kind of my point. Yeah. Is that, like, what you want out of this Warriors team at the least, if they're going to win, is to really see how they respond when they're pushed by by a worthy adversary. Mm Mm-hmm. And what happens when, you know, Kawhi sprains his ankle and misses the rest of the series or Chris Paul strains his hamstring and misses the rest of the series is you don't necessarily get to see them go up against a worthy adversary. And the Cavs are waiting in the finals, and I don't know that you can really call them a worthy adversary either. Right. So that's what's, that's what's a bummer. You know, it's a bummer for the Rockets, it's a bummer for Chris Paul, and it's kind of a bummer for the Warriors, to be honest. Yeah, that's true. Okay, we're going to take one last break here, and then we're going to come back and recall one of LeBron's greatest playoff performances. Welcome back. Um, Earlier in this podcast, we had the conversation about whether or not uh, LeBron um, taking this shorthanded uh, quite frankly, not that talented uh, Cavaliers team to the finals is one of his greatest playoff performances. I still maintain that LeBron's greatest pre- playoff performance is when um, in 2007 against the Detroit Pistons in the Eastern Conference Finals, um, the Pistons were down or were up 2 nothing in the series to start. And then LeBron in game five, well, the series tied 2-2. The game goes to double overtime and LeBron scores... 25 straight points for the um, for the Cavaliers to to win it in double overtime. Um, 29 of 30. It's a very famous moment in LeBron's career. It really announced his super super startup. Like before, it was like, wow, LeBron is clearly you know fantastic and everything like that. And this was like, man, he could really be the greatest of all time. Like for real, for real. Like he's really doing this in the playoffs. And he he had a his team at the time was just as bad if not worse than what he currently had but we could talk about that another time but um yeah lebron going ham on the the pistons um what do you remember about that game i remember watching it by myself uh at my parents house mm. and um just kind of i don't know what noise were noises were like emitting from my body but there were some squeals yep. there were some giggles some cackles some gasps yeah. Um. I, I, I don't know. I just have a really fond memory of just being by myself and being totally in my own world and kind of not really believing what I was seeing. It was unbelievable the way that, like, man, the Pistons were a really, really good team, right? A former champion. You got, um, you know, Rashid. You got Chauncey Bill. Uh, you got Rip Hamilton, Tayshawn Prince. Like some solid veterans come off the bench too, and. They should have won that game. Like, when they took a seven-point lead with, like, two minutes left in change, like, it looked to be over. And then that's when LeBron really decided, I'm just going to take every single shot here. Um, You know, there is – he goes for an and one uh, with the Cavs down seven. He crossed up rib. Hamilton goes to the rim, finishes through contact. Then he has a pull-up three in transition where he's kind of just bouncing on his feet, and then he drills it. It's it's a crazy shot. Um, It kind of sets up later on when he has an even more dramatic shot from that, that same spot. 
Uh, and then he has a ferocious dunk where he gets switched on to Jason Maxiel, crosses him up, and then like just has a nasty jam um, to put them up one. And then I think the the Pistons had a free throw. This is all before regulation to to um, push their to tie the game or something like that. Uh, and then LeBron has another driving dunk, basically to send it to overtime. And then, I mean, it's just an insane performance because he kind of just goes to another level and he shows a level of like determination that we we have seen from him um, for most of his career. Obviously, you know, there were some down moments between 2008 and 2011 where he wasn't as assertive, but that was the same aggression that LeBron showed in Game Seven um, that we just watched this season. Is that like? Him just driving through defenders, putting his head down and going to the rim, relentlessness, um, ability to pace himself. He played 50 minutes in that double overtime game, um, and he was taking every single shot. And um, for him to have the legs to fade to his left and hit a couple of jumpers like that in double overtime to seal the result is just – it speaks to the greatness of LeBron. Yeah. Two images stand out to me from that game. Mm-hmm. Um, one is he had this driving layup that I think put them ahead in right. overtime. And it's just him in midair. And he's kind of double clutching before he lays the ball in. And he's surrounded by literally all five pistons. Yeah. They did not care about anybody else who was on the floor. They all collapsed on him. He hit the layup anyway. And the other one is just him on Mike Brown's shoulder after the game. Mm-hmm. So absolutely dead, exhausted. Right. Um, and it was kind of like, a little bit similar to MJ kind of collapsing in Scottie Pippen's arms after the flu game mm-hmm. in the 97 finals. Um, he left it all out there and, you know, it was a sign of things to come. The fact that he was going to be a guy who could empty the tank anytime he needed to really um, and could single-handedly win you a game, uh, even against a formidable opponent. Yeah, And let's not forget that Booby Gibson went off in that Game 6 to win the series. I was going to say, yeah, because LeBron actually wasn't that good in Game 6. He shot 3 of uh, three of 11 in that, in that game, in Game 6, in which the Cavaliers won 98 to 82. I think that was kind of the last gaps of the Pistons there. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, who needs LeBron when you have Booby Gibson coming off the bench for 31 points on 9 shots? Like, wait, yo. wait, 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 what? Yeah, he had 31 points on nine shots. How? Okay, can you read me that shooting line? Yeah, okay, so 31 points on seven of nine shooting from the field, a perfect five of five from the three-point line. He also had 15 free throw attempts in which he hit made 12. Wow. So there you go. All right. Yeah, that's the next playoff flashback, Booby Gibson. <laughs> yeah. But, um, uh, anyway, yeah, LeBron's still doing it, man, all these years later. Yeah. Playing the full 48. Mm-hmm. Um, Year 15. Yeah. It's, wow. uh, it's pretty incredible, man. It really is. All right. We'll see LeBron in the finals again, and we'll we'll know who the finals opponent is going to be tomorrow. Uh, like I said, there's going to be an extra episode this week um, you know, for the finals, and so we'll speak to you again uh, tomorrow. Thanks to Joe Wolfheim for coming on the podcast, and uh, as always, please support the show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing, and we'll be back tomorrow.